I want to welcome everyone to our Critical Issues program. We're very happy to have with it, back with us uh, Bill Overholt. Uh, he's our reliable local uh, researcher and scholar uh, who spent enough time in Hong Kong with a huge staff uh, to do all kinds of research and business and uh, uh, government uh, with a PhD of, um, after Harvard College a PhD from Yale in political science, and then lots of years as a so-called economist uh, working for the bank to get, have a lot of research assistance, and therefore a very deep knowledge of politics and business. And so we're calling on him today uh, to talk on the question of decoupling. Uh, as you know, some of it has occurred and it's such a huge issue uh, now for so many places that it's very timely uh, that we're uh, calling on uh, Bill, who is knowledgeable about this and many other issues, especially looking at businesses, what they have to do to keep up their supply chain and keep up their relations and keep up in the context of what's possible with governments. Uh, without further ado, Bill, it's yours. Uh, thank you, Ezra. <clears throat> well, Decoupling has become a major theme for uh, the most Trumpian parts of the Republican uh, administration. And the Democrats uh, talk about repudiating engagement, but it's basically the same issue. Uh, are we going to divide our world into two? Uh, substantially separate blocks. Uh, uh, I want to start by uh, addressing some key myths and then dig deeper into uh, the, the sectoral issues that are involved in decoupling. Uh, we need to start by acknowledging that it's not just the U.S. <clears throat> that's made decoupling a major issue. Uh, China has pushed it earlier and harder. Uh, uh, Chinese leaders talk about uh, achieving self-reliance and, and dominance in every major industrial sector. <clears throat> they don't call that decoupling. Uh, many of them don't think of it as decoupling, but it is decoupling. Also in agriculture, Xi Jinping has said, the food bowl of the Chinese people must remain firmly in their own hands. Uh, that's somewhat justified uh, given that uh, fluctuations in Chinese agriculture could, could be larger than global food surpluses. Uh, also, China has decoupled the global internet and, and more generally the global information system. I'm going to focus pretty heavily on the U.S. though, and let me start with some uh, popular myths in Washington about decoupling. Uh, start with the trade myth. Uh, in May, Donald Trump said, You'd save $500 billion if you cut off the whole relationship. It's embarrassing even to have to mention this kind of nonsense. 
from Donald Trump, but since he's the president, we have to deal with it. China's trade surplus in 2019 was 1% of GDP, almost perfect balance. Uh, the, the huge US trade deficit is caused by the fact that we spend a lot more than we save. And it's greatly expanded by the government deficits caused by Trump's tax cuts. Um, if Trump cut ties to China, we'd simply have a larger trade deficit with everybody else. Um, the trade war has not reduced the trade deficit even a little, and it's caused a net loss of US manufacturing jobs. Uh, second, and this is particularly powerful on the democratic side, uh, the political myth, which says, Engagement was always a mistake based on the assumption that we engaged China in the belief that economic uh, ties would make China a democracy. Now, this argument is simply false. Nixon engaged China as a counterweight to the Soviet Union. That worked beautifully. I was head of the Asia Policy Task Force for Jimmy Carter's 1976 uh, campaign for the presidency. And our China briefs never mentioned democratization. But the driver in the Carter administration uh, for diplomatic normalization was Mike Oxenberg. And Mike was consistent that we had no ability to transform Chinese politics. Uh, let me just read one of his many statements. America has only limited influence on China's internal affairs. The United States cannot create to its liking small countries on its doorstep, Panama, Haiti, Cuba, El Salvador. And experiences in the Middle East and Southeast Asia demonstrate that Americans have no special talent for shaping the governance of countries further afield. Yet for reasons that have fascinated successive generations of historians, America has sought to produce a China more to its liking. These efforts have always ended in a massive failure. The next phase was uh, uh, the fight over most favored nation status, which came to be called permanent normal trading status. There was a close vote on this in 1993. Uh, it was really a pivot in our relationship with China. At the time, the American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong was the biggest and most influential American Chamber of Commerce outside Washington. Uh, it represented uh, almost all the major corporations with Asian operations. Uh, Hong Kong AmCham's doorknock in 1993, our annual visit uh, to Washington, moved uh, just enough congressional votes to change the balance and block the effort to take away uh, China's most favored nation status. Uh, 
as the most research-oriented governor of AmCham, I did most of the research for that presentation, and I ended up testifying. Our argument was that revoking MFN would destroy Hong Kong, devastate Taiwan, seriously damage the liberal coastal areas of China, and help the nasty nationalists in Beijing like Li Peng. Uh, we did not mention democracy, the business and, and geopolitical considerations were decisive. The only dis discussion of any impact on Chinese domestic politics was Nancy Pelosi's disagreement with my argument that remote revoking MFN would enable the, the uh, reactionary Chinese nationalists like Li Peng rather than facilitating human rights. Gage McAfee and I met with her in her office and she declared, there's no nationalism in China. And she reached into her handbag and pulled out a Hershey's chocolate bar and said, I'll bet you a chocolate bar with almonds that there's no nationalism in China. They just want our money. Um, that was the level of discussion. Uh, she represented the unions, uh, we represented the businesses and uh, we prevailed. Uh, yes, three presidents subsequently made comments about liberalizing or democratizing China as a benefit of engagement. Ronald Reagan made similar comments, but that was never a central thrust of American policy. As China was about to join the WTO, uh, Madeleine Albright and Sam Samuel Berger, who were the, the uh, official spokespeople, argued strongly that political liberalization was not inevitable and the WTO membership was not a human rights policy. Economic and security arguments, and more recently, moral repugnance over repression in Xinjiang have consistently be, been decisive. Second, there's an economic myth. A myth that on the economic side, uh, China failed to join the system as it was expected to do. Actually, China made heroic efforts to join the system, but it's also gained the system and has continued to demand uh, developing country privileges long after those privileges were inappropriate. Start with the fact that China taught most of its people English and senior officials now speak better English than, than uh, their counterparts and some of our allies. Uh, it was a huge task that was connected with joining uh, the international system. China's efforts to meet WTO requirements were truly heroic. The WTO requirements imposed on China at US uh, demand were far more stringent than those imposed on any other country. Uh, it would be unimaginable, for instance, 
to ask India to accept more than a, a small fraction of the requirements that were imposed on China. I was running research teams in Hong Kong during that period. And the consensus of analysts was that honoring the WTO agreements would cost China many tens of millions of jobs in industries like cars and steel and cement and aluminum and, and, and many others. Uh, so many jobs that uh, analysts had a hard time figuring out how China could maintain social stability uh, if, it, if it went ahead. But it did go ahead. The scramble to avoid industrial collapse and social upheaval required China in the decade uh, from 94 to 2003 to shed 45 million state enterprise jobs, mostly in manufacturing. Uh, they sustained this because they were able to move most of those people into service sector jobs. Uh, the car industry provides a good example of the difficult tasks China faced in preparing for WTO membership. At the turn of the century, China had 128 small, inefficient, backward car companies. Most analysts expected that with opening for WTO, the industry would simply collapse as they expected the steel and aluminum and cement industries to just collapse. To avert that fate, China engineered a rapid consolidation of ownership that would be unthinkable in, in any Western country or India. Uh, and they encouraged uh, partnerships with advanced uh, country car, car companies. Uh, Chinese officials at that time concluded that having a nationalistic car industry like uh, Japan or South Korea uh, was no, no longer possible in, in the more globalized world of 2001. So they opened China to foreign car companies in a way that Japan and South Korea would never consider. Today, when you drive in Shanghai or Beijing or any other major city, you're never out of sight of Buicks and Audis and BWs and Hyundais. You can drive all day in Tokyo or Seoul and only see one or two European cars. These efforts were all managed by Premier Zhu Rongji. By the end of his term as premier, Chinese society was simply exhausted by the stresses of change. As I traveled around China in those days, people spoke of Zhu Rongji with hatred. He's back to being a hero today, which is, which is right, but not then. Uh, the administration uh, of which he was premier was then succeeded by an administration that 
promised a harmonious society, meaning operationally curtailment of the stressful market changes that Zhu Rongji and Zhang Zemin had promoted. And there's a currency myth. And in 2016, almost all American politicians of both parties uh, denounced China for manipulating its currency, undervaluing it in order to promote its exports and steal American jobs. At that time, the Chinese currency was actually overvalued and it's been either overvalued or fairly valued most of the time since. I, I wrote a book about the Chinese currency. Uh, Donald Trump was the most extreme. He claimed that the currency was 40% undervalued. Well, that was a number, an extreme number, a very controversial number used by Fred Bergston a decade earlier. And in 2016, Bergston himself was testifying that the Chinese currency was no longer undervalued. Again, American politicians who had access to the best economists, if they wanted it, uh, almost uniformly uh, promoted the, the currency myth. And uh, Trump trumpeted uh, that China's agreement to stop manipulating its currency was one of the great victories of his trade war. Uh, so these are the great myths. Uh, one accusation that's accurate uh, is that China gained the WTO rules. And certainly it did. Um, that, unfortunately for the weight of that argument, everyone games the WTO rules, especially the United States. We create arbitrary standards to keep out of Mexican tomatoes and Brazilian sugar. We game the anti-dumping rules and, and judge Chinese companies against the prices of companies from countries that clearly are, are inappropriate. And President Trump's argument that putting tariffs on iron and steel uh, and aluminum uh, or a vital national security incident, uh, need. They're so dishonest that it's difficult to, to even use the word gaming. Uh, uh, so gaming is what people do with rules uh, and the US is a grand champion. The, the real problem in the US relationship is different. China insists on retaining developing country privileges while having some of the world's biggest enterprises and while asserting itself as a world leader. It insists on full access to Western markets while limiting foreigners access to the Chinese market. It insists on full access where China has an advantage mainly in manufacturing and largely denying access in sectors, mostly services, 
where Western countries have an advantage. It, it uses infant industry arguments to protect, protect its banks, even though it has four of the world's 10 largest banks. It seeks self-reliance in every modern industry, but wants foreign countries to accept dependence on China. Well, this is the big picture. Let, let me turn to a sector-by-sector -sector analysis of the issues involved in decoupling. Uh, Americans and Europeans certainly were complacent for a long time. Uh, massive intellectual property theft has occurred. Uh, it has to be stopped. Uh, risky dependencies have developed. Uh, we need to protect ourselves against the risks of either economic warfare or kinetic warfare. So first of all, there are national security issues. The dependence on China for vital inputs like rare earths where China has almost the whole world supply. Uh, Chinese spying and in political influence uh, operations have gotten under, out of control. And second, business security issues. Uh, China's very fast to employ economic warfare, using rare earths against Japan, bananas against the Philippines, attacking Korea, Lote hotels in Korea, um, Australian mines, Australian beef, Australian barley, uh, COVID PPE for the United States, uh, tourists in all sorts of places, uh, the list is endless. The West has to protect itself. Uh, the problem, Chinese promises used to be about the most reliable in the world. After what's happened in Hong Kong and the South China Seas and all sorts of other things uh, in, in recent years, uh, you can't depend on Chinese promises anymore. So the West has to protect itself. Uh, in some ways, above all, the West needs to be able to resist Chinese threats to freedom. When China sanctioned the NBA because one manager spoke out against the Hong Kong national security law, uh, when it forces a big bank, HSBC, uh, to protect its business uh, by endorsing the Hong Kong national security law. Uh, these things are an existential threat to the core Western value of freedom of speech. Uh, one of the biggest tasks going forward is going to be, how do we protect ourselves against that? Well, these issues create imperatives to adjust the US-China relationship. But these supply side arguments, and they're how to distinguish the supply side, which is what the national security people always look at, from the demand side, uh, uh, which they tend to leave out. If you look at the structure of the global market, for half a century, the Western baby boomer has been the center of gravity of the global market. 
Now the center of gravity is Asia and particularly China. If you make Hermes bags, uh, uh, General Motors cars, uh, Hollywood movies, any kind of cell phone, your market is there. Uh, US officials somehow uh, neglect that. Uh, for instance, Attorney General Bill Barr denounced Disney because it, it took one character, one bad guy character in a movie and made him a, a, North, a Northern European uh, citizen rather than Chinese. Well, if that's your standard, and you're gonna call people traitors for changing one character uh, to have the Chinese market, uh, Hollywood's dead. Um, if we decouple from the China market, Apple loses 20% of its market. Qualcomm loses 60% of its market. Uh, GM goes bankrupt. You lose the center of gravity of the world market. And you become incapable of com competing globally with Chinese companies. You become incapable of competing globally with European and Japanese companies that do co cooperate with China. So uh, you're talking here about a historical decline in the US leadership role in the world economy. Uh, people don't, uh, the Washington voices have not been talking about that. Second area, technology. And here the, the issues are quite nuanced. Huawei was on the verge of dominating all global markets for 5G, the sing single most important technology of the near future. With full access to Western markets and to the Chinese market, Huawei could afford a research and development budget that was bigger than all of its competitors combined. So Nokia and Ericsson, leading competitors, would just die. Huawei would own everything. Now, now Huawei is a great company, but that advantage comes purely from, from unfair market conditions, the others being excluded from the Chinese market. So the economic case for banning Huawei is overwhelming. The Trump administration has made a terrible mistake of focusing on the, on the security, exclusively on the security case. TikTok, uh, given China's quick resort to intimidation of anyone who expresses opinions uh, different from those of likes, uh, I have to say that the privacy case for limiting uh, TikTok has considerable weight. But US policy has been erratic, uh, corrupt, and very personalized to Donald Trump. WeChat. Banning WeChat would serve no important national security interest and would cripple US business and innumerable valuable personal relationships with Chinese. That is the 
mode of communication that we all use with Chinese colleagues. Uh, banning it is just crazy. Semiconductors. This is the big one. And this could really go either way. Now, when we banned exports to the Chinese space industry, we enabled China, encouraged China, stimulated China to build a first-class space industry. Uh, some Chinese very senior officials said to me over dinner one night in Seoul, you helped our space industry by banning exports to it, uh, but but you didn't. We're totally dependent on your your airplane industry. Uh, uh, do you suppose you could put some export controls on the airplanes for us, please? That could be one out outcome. Another outcome could be that the cumbersome. Uh, centralized, uh, uh, clumsy uh, government process of, uh, of building a, a semiconductor industry uh, will defeat them. Uh, they've already spent $103 billion in, in subsidies for their semiconductor industry, uh, and they've fallen further and further behind. So we don't know how that's going to work out. But, but, but policy details will make, make the difference. And finally, in the technology area, standards. Who, who's going to set the standards for 5G and other technologies? Uh, here, as in almost every other area, the, the US has tried to freeze China out. And they, you know, we and the Europeans make standards. If you Chinese demand a big voice, uh, it's aggression. Uh, uh, conversely, China uh, has evolved recently to a very nationalistic position. Uh, a Chinese uh, leads the UN Committee on Standards, and he he makes no pretense of operating in the best interests of the world objectively he's just pushing chinese standards so this is like the old japanese conflict between uh, vhs and betamax and uh, it's totally debilitating to both sides every everybody loses so technology is a big category of decoupling the next category is people uh, one key category of people is Chinese and Chinese-American executives. Uh, yes, the U.S. was complacent. We've had huge intellectual property losses. But the U.S. response has had huge excesses. Chinese executives have become very fearful of uh, legal and social attacks. We are dependent upon Chinese executive leadership. 20% or more of Silicon Valley, major Silicon Valley uh, successes uh, are founded or run by uh, 
Chinese or Chinese Americans. Companies like NVIDIA and Yahoo, uh, a much higher proportion have uh, Chinese or Chinese Americans in key executive positions where, where success requires them. Uh, second category of people, scientists and scholars. Again, we've had very serious lapses in protecting intellectual property. Um, we have to fix that. But we've created a, an atmosphere of fear for Chinese and Chinese American scholars. And even those who may have physical characteristics of Northeast Asians, uh, hate crimes in New York have been a serious problem. Recently, a, a distinguished Japanese musician got off the subway in Harlem and a crowd call him a, called him a Chinese expletive deleted and beat him up to the point where he may never play music again. Uh, great American scientists like David Ho, who led the conquest of HIV and AIDS, and St Stephen Chu, the Stanford Nobel Prize winner, uh, who served as US Secretary of Energy, loyal Chinese Americans have expressed very serious concern about the vilification of Chinese and Chinese American scholars. The recent departure of artificial intelligence uh, expert Ju Song Chun from, from UCLA to Beida could be the beginning of an exodus. It was this kind of, of vilification that led in the McCarthy era to the exodus of the nuclear expert who, who founded Chinese nuclear weapon industry. We've taken decisions that have no business or security rationale like ending the Fulbright exchange program. As background, in China, everybody has an undeclared sideline. I don't think I've ever met anyone who doesn't. Uh, that practice transferred here, enabled by weak US enforcement of its rules. The right policy response is to announce very tough enforcement going forward and to prosecute deliberate theft and some very vivid examples, but not to treat every oversight as a major crime. The reality is this US-China scientific collaboration has increased the last five years. It's in continuing to increase and the mutual benefits are huge. Collaborations on subjects like air pollution and green energy are invaluable to the United States. China is the biggest publisher of uh, scholarly research. The uh, US is the most influential publisher of research. The, there are thoughtful Americans who think that the net benefit is now in the US of exchange is now in the US favor. Uh, in short, we have some real problems that need to be addressed but we're keeping out scholars that we need to invite in and we're chasing out scholars that we desperately need to keep. US policy and behavior 
have become indiscriminate. The same thing with students. Uh, uh, Chinese students are mostly uh, innocent kids looking for a better education. Often they're here because their parents are fearful of, of erratic policy in China and want their money and their kids out of China. Uh, Trump, the Trump administration proposed in 2018 to ban all Chinese students. Uh, recently proposed to uh, keep out all foreign students who are just getting e-instruction. Um, there's been an effort to bar many Chinese students from STEM majors. The Committee of 100 estimates that historically the majority of the top 20% of Chinese students remained here in the United States and contributed to the American economy, mostly in some STEM subjects where the U.S. economy is constrained by a serious shortage of skills. So uh, uh, the US has the capacity to deal with uh, the limited number of bad eggs. Uh, uh, Chinese students, uh, contrary to some security briefings, are, are not all assigned to bring back a few bytes of information that are then assembled by geniuses back in Beijing. Um, Similarly, uh, in, in tourism, uh, Chinese tourists are the most numerous in the world. They're the highest spending of any country's tourists. Uh, they spend an average of uh, $6,700 per person per visit in, in the United States. Uh, they spent, in 2017, they spent $19 billion in this country. They are not a threat to our national security, but that number has been collapsing because of the Trump administration's uh, hostile atmosphere. Uh, well, one another crucial area is uh, decoupling in financial markets. Nick Lardy, uh, uh, one of the great analysts of the Chinese economy, thinks there will be few effects from efforts at financial decoupling. I disagree. Uh, uh, if we drive at financial and others back to Hong Kong, Hong Kong and Shanghai, we virtually guarantee that the Hong Kong fundraising market will be larger than the New York market for the indefinite future. There's a strong valid argument for banning Chinese companies because China will not allow review of the books at the source in China. And that, that invites frauds like Lucan Coffee. On the other hand, if you drive all these listed Chinese companies back, that just guarantees that the Hong Kong market is going to be a much bigger market than, than New York. Uh, American banks will still participate. That's where the action is in the global market. Uh, but they'll have uh, proportionally smaller roles and, and, and smaller fees. And, and, and the US uh, role in leadership of world financial markets will decline. So, so this is a tough one that requires very careful, empirical, balanced, 
decisions that, that we're not getting so far. So that's a sectoral picture. Stepping back from individual sectors, I don't really have time to elaborate on the fact that we live in a better world because of the past four decades of Sino-American coupling. Africa is developing. Bangladesh and Ethiopia are viable societies. Latin America no longer leads the world into every great financial crisis. None of that would have happened without Sino-American economic entente. China's success has brought it over a threshold where it's become a leader in fighting climate change and environmental deterioration. It doesn't happen when, when economies are not that successful at, for instance, India. Uh, the whole world, especially the poorest parts of the world, is more prosperous and secure and will live in a better environment because of the coupling, however difficult, of these two great nations. Uh, abandoning that due to overreactions and silliness would be a historic global tragedy. So what are the root problems on both sides uh, driving this decoupling? On the Chinese side, China is driving decoupling by pursuing a policy of self-reliance and dominance in every key technology. China is demanding the special privileges of a developing nation while simultaneously asserting that it's a global leader that has the right to reshape the global economy. These policies contain fatal contradictions and ensure trouble with the whole rest of the world. On the US side, Politicians of both parties in Washington focus on the supply side where our vulnerabilities lie and largely ignore the demand side. Uh, Trump, Barr, Pelosi, and Schumer don't seem to be able to, to get out of this mentality, which is like viewing uh, a company like Apple uh, and looking only at its debts. And, and not at its revenues and, and potential. Second, um, uh, it tends to be a false view of national security that looks only at the military side. If you look at the success of the US in, in the Cold War, at the rise of Japan, of Germany, of South Korea, of Singapore, of Indonesia, and now of China, Success comes from focusing on your economy and from tying yourself to the prosperity of friends and allies. Uh, pure focus on, on the military side is a guarantee of failure. And there's ambiguity in the Trump administration about the criteria for for sanctions. Who's going to get nailed and who isn't? If you're nailed today, are you going to be nailed tomorrow? That uncertainty leads everybody to prepare for the worst and creates a, a vicious circle of, of unnecessary decoupling. 
And I have to say, under the Trump administration, much of the substance of policy is driven by momentary desires to mobilize a domestic political base. It has nothing to do with real national security or economic considerations. Uh, in short, uh, Americans, Westerners, democracies have some really serious problems with China, uh, some of which need to be addressed by closing some doors. Uh, the current administration in the US has made all those problems much worse than they need to be. Having said that, anyone who doubts the need for change hasn't been reading the news about Huawei, Xinjiang, the South China Sea, Hong Kong, and Beijing's endless efforts to dominate key global markets through unfair competition. Washington's response to these very real problems has been thoughtless, incoherent, and driven by short-term domestic political considerations. Recent US policy toward international organizations and alliances has had the same shortcomings. On that happy note, I will stop and see if I've elicited any reactions or questions. Thank you. Bill, that is a wonderful uh, tour of the horizon of uh, giving us a broad picture of what is real and what isn't. One little comment about the uh, Chinese uh, who are in the United States. Uh, Zoom uh, was developed by a guy named Eric Yen, uh, who was one of those Chinese uh, who came and he now runs the company. Uh, Yen Zheng is his name. Uh, and uh, they have given uh, Zoom use free to elementary schools around the world, 150,000 schools. They don't charge uh, for Zoom. And how thankful and how lucky, just to sort of supplement uh, your, your points about how important it has been to have these Chinese-American uh, uh, cooperation. Um, let, me, let me ask a, a general question now. Supposing uh, Biden wins and that the advisors call you in and say, how would you structure a government and how would you organize it to deal with these issues? Uh, where, uh, I mean, their combined economic, uh, political, military issues and uh, the issue of cutting off uh, WeChat was awfully tough on American businessmen in China. It, it was a disastrous policy. Now, if you were dealing with certain kind of problems uh, on China, you ought to have some inputs from, it's a subject, let me put it this way. To me, China is not such a big issue. It's such a dominant part of the world that you need to have inputs from all kinds of different sources, political, you need business of different kinds, uh, you need scientists. How would you organize a group or how would you structure a group? Who would you put on it in Washington who would be able to deal with these issues in a fairly constructive way? What, what, uh, how would you go about setting up that group? 
Um, first of all, you get back to dealing with people who deal with real numbers, real science, uh, and systematic policy. Uh, uh, the Trump administration has abolished the scientists. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> Ellen, something like WeChat, you can sit down and have a column of a negative column and a positive column and, and arrive at a balance. When you arrive at that balance, you have to talk with your national security people, you have to talk with your commerce people. Uh, uh, this is what a national security council is, is supposed to do, get every all the considerations in the room and arrive at a balance. That's not being done now. Uh, and you have to restore a systematic process. It's not Trump's tweets, it's, it's a systematic process. Second, this country is full of, of uh, officials who can deal uh, objectively and technocratically with the issues. Um, the Repu the, the Repu but they've been shut out of, of today's Washington on, on both sides. Uh, the Republican foreign policy establishment, the, uh, nine out of 10 of the most respected of the most foreign policy Republican uh, most respected foreign policy experts have been out of the Trump administration. People like Paul Henley of uh, the National Security Council, uh, uh, they're there on, on both sides. But, and, and you, have to, you have to bring them back from both the Democrats and, and the Republicans. Uh, what's happened is that the, de the debate has been dominated by congressional polarized factions. When I was going to Washington in 1993 uh, to argue about most favored nation status, we could deal with you know, people like Bill Bradley and, and Richard Lugar and you think of people like John Glenn and Sam Nunn. There was a, there was this center that almost scientifically weighed the national interest, and then you had an extreme right of fanatical anti-communists, and then you had a left of, of people like Pelosi who, who just spoke for the more extreme views of the unions. Uh, and they didn't have much weight. And what's happened is that center has just disappeared and, and the debate is totally dominated by these extremes. And uh, there is no substantial center in the US Congress anymore. Uh, and you have to make a tremendous public relations effort to 
educate the public. Uh, a lot of the public is educable. Uh, uh, you know, what, what's the real cause of our loss of manufacturing jobs? No, six out of seven are lost because of, of technological change. But both the Republicans and the Democrats have constituency reasons for blaming it all on China. And so the, the, the entire public has this completely warped view. You have to have a massive educational effort. Uh, if, you, if you do these things, uh, you create a systematic process again. Bring back, bring back the experts. Uh, uh, educate the public about, about the realities of the situation through these grand ideological slogans and myths, uh, then, then we can get back to sensible policy and a difficult but managed balanced relationship that has competitive and cooperative elements with China. Uh, we did it with the Soviet Union, which was a much bigger problem. Uh, but we, we had the kind of system and people that, that, that were designed to do that. What I don't know how to solve is the problem of foreign policy in a peacetime democracy. When we have a war or a cold war, we elect Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Nixon, people who know a lot about foreign policy. That's, it's key to their success. When we're at peace, we elect Calvin Coolidge, Harding, and, and George W. Bush, and Barack Obama, and Donald Trump, who have no experience in foreign policy. And that's a problem. That's a, a huge problem. Uh, you know, Obama, enormously intelligent, wonderful values, cosmopolitan instincts. But he consistently made bad decisions because he just didn't have any experience. Uh, now, Biden does have some experience. Uh, Harris does not. Uh, we'll see how it works out, but I think we have to acknowledge that this, this is a problem for our system. Foreign policy doesn't count in this election, didn't count, hasn't counted in any election since 2000. It seems to me, well, uh, if you were in the new administration, you couldn't uh, decide who would be elected to Congress. You wouldn't have that capacity. And I take it to have the kind of advice like the Paul Hanley and the, the people who had experience, you could set up a group through the White House. Uh, so uh, would, would I assume then that your answer is to a new administration if you're advising them, it would be bring in people to a White House group 
who had broad knowledge and experience in foreign policy and particularly in dealing with China and make that the core and try to work with Congress. But you, you I mean, the, the sad, <laughs> sad thing is you have to work with Congress as it is. Would that be a, a fair summary of where you've... Yeah, you have a National Security Council of, of, of solid people and make the National Security Council work as a system that actually makes the you know, Defense Department and the Commerce Department Department talk to each other. And you appoint, appoint similar experienced officials in places like state and, and defense and CIA and so on. We haven't had that for four years. Uh, and you, you, in dealing with the Congress, the president's advantage is that the, the president has a pulpit. The president can explain things like the problem of, of manufacturing unemployment to the, to the people and overwhelm the nonsense you get from both the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, and, and it's a tough, it's a tough battle, but you have to have a president who's willing to, to have that battle. Uh, you need the, the communicative, the communication skills of, of a Ronald Reagan uh, to, to get over some of these humps created by these ideological nuts on both sides who, who dominate the debate otherwise. One of the, as you were talking, I could think of you know, ways of dealing with those issues. But of the, of the issues you mentioned, one of the toughest for me to try to think of what the right solution is for big companies that want into the Chinese market. If you're a Hollywood firm and, and Beijing tells you, if you use a certain character who does X, Y, Z, your movie's not going to be shown in China. And a lot of your you know, market you know, is in China. Uh, or if you're, you know, GM or some other company or Google or something, uh, that if you say certain things about China, you're going to be closed to the market. I mean, that, that seems to me one of the most difficult things. In, in, a lot of people in the United States worry that China is going to propagandize Americans and they're going to use various kind of uh, uh, CCTV or something you know, that or the people's daily to influence. I, I don't worry about that. I think that uh, there are enough sensible Americans that are not gonna persuade us. But this leverage over companies is real and tough. And uh, do you have any general comments on that or, or uh, as a nation, how we respond to that one? You've got two constraints. One constraint is that for most global companies, China is the center of gravity of the market. And you know, our politicians have to have to deal with that. And the, you had four Trump administration leaders, the Attorney General, the, the Secretary of State, the National Security Advisor, and so on, give speeches. And, and Never a mention of that kind of consideration. Um, 
So on one side, that's a constraint. On the other side, you can't allow your company to become a, a propaganda tool. Uh, and there's a lot of space between those two constraints for most companies. You know, if you're making blue jeans or General Motors cars or, or Gucci bags, uh, at some point you may, you may pay a price at the margin. They try to force, they try to force you to make propaganda point for them. Uh, and you have to say no. That's really important. Uh, when Disney uh, made a, a major movie in Xinjiang, that was a big mistake. They learned. They won't make that mistake again. Uh, 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 there's a cost to having to do it somewhere else. That's what you have to do. So my point is, you operate in this, this space, and when they try, when they try to force you, you act strongly. You get support from other companies and from the government, uh, and and you 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 pay some price for being honest. Lucy, how you have a comment or question? Yes. Uh, thank you, Bill. Uh, that was an excellent tour de force about history, as well as how the economic relationship between the United States and China had become politicized. And uh, <clears throat> so you gave the great deal of the logic and the cost benefit of if we decouple. But your talk is also about the logic of the couple and the illogic. So you present the illogical part. Do you want to tell us which part do you think maybe there's a logical decoupling? For example, if United States want to at least slow down the loss of manufacturing jobs or some agricultural products, not stop it, but slow it down so the United States can adjust. Is that there are areas where in uh, log logical decoupling should be considered? You might. And then going back to Ezra's question, <clears throat> China went very far repressing freedom including freedom of uh, uh, press, expression, and movements, including showing movies. Now, do you think decoupling should be used sometimes to relax that boundary? You seem to willing to accept that boundary place in China and say we should work within that boundary. Should the United States use decoupling as a tool to re push back that boundary? Thank you. Yeah. Well, yes, uh, I may 
kind of emphasized enough, but there is a logic to some decoupling. Uh, we, we need to ban Huawei and, and we need to ban any other company that begins to take over the, the whole world market and, and, uh, and, it re and a lot of areas in which this happens. I, I gave an example in a recent publication of what happened in pork. Uh, I was a consultant to a, a pork company and it, it would have become a huge part of the Chinese market but at the last minute. Party secretary blocked a deal that when American companies with big, efficient, successful, clean companies in China it would have taken over. They blocked that. And then sure enough, the, the Chinese companies got bigger and bigger because of the size of the Chinese market. And then the Chinese company bought Smithfield and, and became the biggest force in the global pork market. We must not allow that to happen. And that means banning companies that take over our markets by this kind of unfair process. If, if the Confucius Institutes become propaganda instruments, then we have to decouple from them. There may be a way of managing them according to certain standards, so we have them, but we may need to decouple completely. Uh, there are all sorts of areas. Uh, you know, Chinese military officers, uh, uh, getting into militarily sensitive contracts is pretending to be innocent students. Uh, uh, I, I want to pick up though, particularly on your point about the loss of manufacturing jobs. Uh, you know, we, we, we should make sure that our tax arrangements and other regulations don't uh, subsidize people to go offshore. But we need most of this adjustment is necessary and inexorable. Uh, I've got a paper I, I show the, the trend of US manufacturing employment. Since 1947, it's steadily down. Uh, because of technological change. You can't eat in, a, in, a, in a, a big graph like that. You can't even see the emergence of China in the graph. And likewise, US manufacturing output steadily up, 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 except for you know the recession, the COVID recession, it hasn't declined because we're making more stuff with fewer people. We're making Boeing airplanes in, instead of cheap socks. And given the inexorability of that trend, you have to help people. And that doesn't mean offering marginal retraining. The outdoor studies show that if, if, if you've got a a, co a company town and the company goes down, people just sit around helpless. You have to study where the jobs are gonna be, both the kind of jobs 
and physically remedy and, and help people move. This is what China did under Zhu Rongji with 45 million jobs. We're, we're wrecked socially by 3 million. Uh, why? The Democrats are dependent politically on the manufacturing unions. So you're not allowed to talk about transferring people into the service sector, which is the only place the jobs are. That's what Jurongji did. He transferred 45 million people into the service sector. Democrats can't talk about that. They just talk about getting the jobs back. They aren't coming back, period. This is like what happened to agricultural employment. It was 98% at one time in this country, and now it's about 2%. But instead of saying that Peru is stealing all our jobs, we built roads and railroads and, and zoning systems for modern cities and attractions for modern industry, and we absorbed those people. The Democrats won't do that for constituency reasons. The Republicans won't do it because that would mean empowering the government, giving it the funds to do something. In their constituency, selfish billionaires won't allow that. So we've got a problem. And, and the only way it's going to be overcome is by a kind of leadership that's, that, that creates a, a, a real break. Uh, generational leadership. Um, it's not, it's not, we're not going to solve this problem by creating barriers for, for, against companies operating in the most efficient global way possible. Uh, it's a domestic social problem. Uh, Bill, we have a lot of questions that come in from the outside, and uh, we have very little time. And I wonder if you could try to give very brief answers to these questions so that we get at least several of the uh, people with uh, questions in. Uh, one is from Du uh, Yufei. It says, Fareed Zakaria ranks human rights abuses against Muslims in the world. He said, uh, Xinjiang is not as bad as Yemen or India. What do you think the US and its allies, why are, do you think we're so focused on Xinjiang and what's the current strategy uh, of you know, such widespread uh, concern for the Uyghurs? Well, the difference between Yemen and, and, and China is that China is really big and Yemen is really small. Uh, uh, the difference between China, and, uh, you know, I, I think the abuses in, in Xinjiang are in fact worse than the abuses in India, but the abuses in India are very severe. And unfortunately, our policy is totally inconsistent. Uh, we, we give India a pass on almost anything because it elects its leader. And uh, right now it's what India is doing in Kashmir and, and has been doing for many years, uh, doesn't get the kind of treatment that 
in our press that St. John gets and, and that India deserves. And uh, go back to the beginning of the Obama administration, there was this huge outrage about China operating in Sudan, in the oil business. And the oil company was a Chinese-Indian joint venture. India got NOAA program and China got this extraordinary outrage uh, and dealings with Iran. India's dealings with Iran were virtually identical to China's dealings with Iran. So we have to decide whether the fact that a top leader is elected should overcome all our major uh, foreign policy uh, considerations. Uh, and, and our leaders of both parties and our media just won't, won't step up uh, and try to rectify the terrible hypocrisy of many of our policies. Uh, a question from Sunni Faye. Is democracy, human rights so important in comparison to some other rights like life and basic needs? I think the point is that China has been providing a lot of economic basic needs. Uh, and uh, is human rights uh, so much more important uh, than meeting those basic economic needs and evaluating another country? Americans have a hard time understanding the problem, I mean, the priorities of a mother in a very poor country like China 40 years ago, or like uh, South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore in 1960. Uh, don't know whether your kid is going to have enough food to survive. The chances of the kid getting diarrhea and dying are astronomically high. Uh, the chances of the kid getting an education are almost zero. When I wrote my last book about China, the number of families in China that, that owned a home was twice the number of Indian families that had access to a toilet. If you don't have access to a toilet, if you don't have enough food, if you don't have any medical care, your priority is survival. And we need to understand that. And on the governments of Park Chung-hee and Zhang Jingguo and, and, and Deng Xiaoping address that, they get the support of their people. And this is because China has basically solved that problem 
That's why its leaders have the highest level of support in Kennedy's school polls of any country in the world. We have to understand that. But, but there are levels of human rights abuse that are just morally unacceptable at any level. And what's going on in Xinjiang is unacceptable. And, and the pressures, once a population has its, its survival and uh, its food, its shelter, its education assured, the priorities change. South Korea, Taiwan, even Singapore today adapt to that. And Xi Jinping's China is not adapting to that. It's afraid of those pressures. And because it's afraid of those pressures, it's going backwards and becoming more oppressive. And I do not believe that the Chinese people are going to accept that indefinitely. I don't believe that we Americans have any ability to change China's political system. And I don't think we should try. But I think, I think the other side of Americans needing to recognize the priorities of a starving family is that Chinese leaders today need to recognize that all these pressures from, from their educators, from their lawyers, uh, from the Me Too movement, uh, these are just gonna get bigger and bigger. If you, if you respond purely by repression, you pay a price. And that price probably isn't revolution and democracy, but it, 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 it's probably uh, dissension and stagnation and, and not becoming the great as great a, a country as China could be. So we, we need dialogue about this. Well, uh, such an extraordinary presentation. It makes me so proud of our series and so happy, you know, one of the good things about our country is it still supports scholars and gives us the opportunity to talk truth to power, uh, to analyze uh, problems. And uh, we're very appreciative that you drawing on all uh, your experience in government and business and uh, universities have been able to do so. We thank you very much. Uh, next week, we are very happy to have with us Jeff Bader, who was Obama's uh, a China specialist and helped uh, get the Obama administration started on the question of how to deal uh, with China in a new administration. He's going to talk to us uh, next Wednesday and the results may, of the election may not be in entirely, but we hope they'll be clear enough that he can provide the direction. So thank you, Bill, and uh, we hope you'll join us next week with Jeff Bader. Thanks a lot.